This morning we're going to begin our sermon series on the book of Matthew, and we're going to start, oop, there's a typo in that insert in your bulletin. It's Matthew 1, verses 1 through 6, not Matthew 11. But Matthew 1, verses 1 through 6, and then verse 17. I'll warn you up front, Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy, or another way we'll translate today is Genesis. But uh, a lot of times we just skip this stuff. And I decided we, we weren't going to skip it as we started Matthew. And hopefully we'll make sense of some meaning out of it. But a genealogy is just a list of ancestors. And this is how Matthew starts. It's actually three times longer than you see. Uh, there's two more sections of it that we're not going to read, but we're going to read the first section. So again, Matthew 1, 1 through 6, and then verse 17. Uh, this, yeah, it's in your bulletin. An account of the genealogy, or Genesis, of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zariah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. So that's verses 1 through 6, the first part of the genealogy, and then at the end of the genealogy, Matthew wraps it up with this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we'll begin with the trivia this morning, because I know that if I don't address this now, the first question I'm going to get as I walk out is, why 14? Right? I know that's, that's going to be the question from somebody, is why 14? Because you know the Bible number is supposed to be 12, right? Why 14? Well... Unfortunately, the only way I know how to describe why it's 14, the best the commentaries can come up with, is you know those horrible books that are about Hebrew being some sort of secret code? You ever seen these things? That every letter in the Hebrew alphabet represents a number, and then if you add up the numbers, there's some secret revelation of God when the end times are coming? They're truly horrible books. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, good, just forget it. But for the rest of us, yes, there's these books out there that think that this idea in Hebrew, that letters correspond to numbers, uh, means that there's some secret prophecy. It's not that dramatic. It's a little accurate, but it's not that dramatic. So what we're talking about is something more like this. Um, take my initials, A, J, S. My initials in my head, each letter gets a color. The letter A is red. The letter J is brown, the letter S is blue. This does not mean God has given me a special revelation, it just means it's what my brain does. It 
things, some things in certain colors. Anybody else have that, have that thing where you see things in colors? No. It happens. It's a brain thing. Uh, but in Hebrew, the idea was that they would correspond numbers like that. Not a big revelation, but just numbers. And so if you take the name David in Hebrew, and you realize that there are no actual vowels in Hebrew, you kind of have to just know what the sound between the consonants is, what you end up with is D, D, D. Four, six, four. Right? Again, just a, a brain association thing they did in the ancient world but in Hebrew was letters correspond to numbers. You have three letters, D, V, D, four, six, four. Four plus six is 10. 10 plus four is 14. So if you look at the thing I printed out for you from Matthew, you'll see I highlighted how significant David is in what Matthew is writing. Right? 14 up to David, 14 after David, and another 14 to Jesus. There's three sections of 14. So it just makes sense because, again, to the ancient Israelites, every other king you ever are going to have is judged by how much they are like or dislike David, how faithful or unfaithful they are compared to David. So as Matthew's going to be writing... And his audience really is primarily the Jewish audience of Christians or the Jewish community in general. He has to say, if Jesus is Lord, if he's king, then you've got to compare him to David. So we get at the very beginning of David, or excuse me, at the beginning of Matthew, we get the Jewish idea of let's compare Jesus to David. Let's connect him to David. 14 generations, 14, 14. It's all kind of symbolic of now we can compare our two kings. So the rest of Matthew, you could probably think of it that way, is, is Matthew going, I'm going to talk to a Jewish audience, and in the back of their heads, I'm always going to have to compare this guy to David. However, you also look at this passage, this genealogy, and you notice the other names that I put in bold? They are... If you look, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. Now, we'll talk about that in a second. But wife of Uriah, it means Bathsheba. I'm pretty sure there's a good reason that uh, Matthew decided to describe her as the wife of Uriah. But four women make the genealogy, which is a surprise. Maybe even a scandal. Because you know who these four women are? Let's run this down. Tamar. Tamar is the Old Testament's black widow. She marries a man, he dies. She marries another man, he dies. She marries another man, he dies. They're all brothers. And then, of course, the story then is they're all brothers. And so the father, Judah, does not want to allow her to keep marrying his sons because she seems to be this black widow. But you have Tamar get named in the genealogy of Jesus. Then you have Rahab. She's not even Jewish. She's not Jewish, and while she did a faithful and good thing, she's a woman of the night. She makes the genealogy. There's Ruth, who is a beloved character in the Old Testament, and in many ways is very virtuous. But do not forget that Ruth is a woman who knows that she has to survive. And she does whatever she has to do to survive. So if you read that book, 
If you've ever heard the song Fancy by Reba McIntyre, this is always the connection I make. Go listen to that song because it's the same story told in different time periods. Women who do whatever they have to do to survive. You can judge them or not. But again, Ruth, Ruth is not, she's a virtuous woman, but maybe not the idyllic of virtue. And then there's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. You get why it's put that way? Because it's saying David had a child with the wife of another man. In other words, Bathsheba is a woman who is an adulteress, while David is the adulterer. They, they, David's the one who ends up having her husband killed to try and hide what they've done when she gets pregnant. But again, four women, scandal? This is the ancient world. Why would you tell a gene genealogy in the ancient world with women on the list? You don't tell genealogies that way, right? Look at the rest of it. It's all men. It's father, son, father, son, father, son. It's King David to Jesus. It's all men. Is this a scandal? Actually, I don't think it's a scandal. I think when Matthew wrote this, he knew very well that the Jewish audience would know who all four of these women were. Uh, they have, were in, in a tradition that had talked about them endlessly. They probably weren't considered great heroes of Scripture. They also weren't probably considered great villains of Scripture. In other words, what they were were irrelevant. Do you understand the difference between somebody who is scandalous and somebody who's irrelevant? Somebody who's scandalous, you, you give them attention, you pay attention, they, you, they get energy from you. Somebody who is irrelevant to you, you go, they don't matter. Take them off the list. Come on, Matthew. You've got to get to the Jesus stuff. You're wasting time. Don't mention these people. But he doesn't. That's why I want us to start with that as Matthew this morning. This idea that there are two things happening in the genealogy. And it's sort of like a song, like the beats to a song, right? David, David, David. That's the major beat. David, David, David. David, David, David. But there's a downbeat that Matthew's hitting as well. And it goes, David, 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 Tamar. David, 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 Rahab. David, 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 Bathsheba. David, 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 Ruth. Right? You've got to hear both. And whenever you hear that in a poem or a song, make sure you pay attention to the downbeats. Because what we actually do is when we get this, the pattern of David, 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 that's when we stop, stop paying attention. We don't pay attention when things are always rhythmically patterned because we get used to the pattern. It is when the pattern breaks. It's in the downbeats that we start paying attention. So Matthew's walking in to telling this gospel, Jesus Christ, and the big drumbeat that he knows, everyone knows, is David, 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 and then he goes, Tamar, David, 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 Rahab, David, 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 Ruth, David, 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 Bathsheba. It's in the downbeats that Matthew is actually going to express something really, really important. So yesterday morning, I was gathering up a whole bunch of clothes that I've been trying to collect all winter to finally get rid of, right? I have bags of this stuff that's too big now. 
thank you, God. But the problem is Salvation Army has been closed so often, I can't actually get rid of this stuff. Uh, the mission does not want more, I've asked. The Rochester's clothing room is like, do not bring me more clothes. I'm trying to get rid of this stuff. But so anyways, I was going through it yesterday morning going, okay, it's finally got to find a place. And what I found was, and you can imagine this, there were some clothes that I went, I don't care about that, get rid of it. And then there were some clothes you're like, oh, I loved that thing. I loved wearing that shirt. And then you kind of want to like set it aside and go, do I save it? Do I hold on to it? Not even just in case. I get the just in case thing, but just that it was so, it was my favorite shirt for so long, kind of thing. And I'm still trying to let it all go. You ever done that with a piece of furniture? Like a cheap IKEA piece of furniture? Think about it this way. How many of you have ever gone to Ikea, Target, Walmart, one of those places where you just get the cheap piece of furniture? Because really, in the end, it is not to you about the style. It's not about spending a lot of money. You have a utilitarian need for this thing. So you're willing to pay, what, five, ten extra dollars to have a style that you like? But basically, it's just get the job done of storage or something. And then it wears out. When it's not important to you, what do you do with it when it's worn out? Put it in the basement. Okay. But here's my analogy, okay? How about putting it out on the curb with a free sign on it? I will put it out on the curb because I just, it was never that big a deal to me. I don't care about it. It's like the clothes where I go, oh, yeah, get rid of it. Never matter. And you put it out on the curb with a free sign. Okay? Somebody comes and picks it up. You never see who that person is. You never meet them because they just took it and left. Six months later, surprise, surprise, you're watching a Broadway show. And your old piece of junk is the centerpiece of this brilliant piece of art. How would you feel in that moment? Seeing your old piece of junk now the centerpiece of brilliance. I think I would, and I've had time to think about it, I think on one hand I'd be grateful. I was grateful that somebody just picked it up so it wasn't my problem anymore, right? The gratitude started there. But it's also grateful that somebody found a use for it that I, I, I hadn't even thought of. Maybe awe and humility. Because again, they saw something in it I didn't. And I recognize I didn't. And they did. You know, just like, wow, moment. And yeah, I can't believe I didn't see it, but good for you that you saw it. Same scenario, but imagine it's your favorite shirt, or it's that antique piece of furniture you got from Grandma, and you put it out on the curb with a free sign on it. First of all, can you even imagine putting a free sign on that sacred object? But you do, and then it ends up on Broadway. And then what do you feel? Maybe if you like what they're doing, like what they did to it, you'd be like, that's awesome. I'm so glad that somebody has taken this and made use of it that I can't anymore. Or maybe you hate what they've done to it because they chopped it apart and put it in pieces. You go, hey, yeah, what do you do next for dresser? And then you're angry. But no matter how you feel about it, good or bad, you know what's missing from the free thing? The, the 
less than relevant, you didn't care about it stuff? No awe. No awe, no humility. I thought about this. In that moment, when your sacred object gets used by someone else, you can feel a lot of different things, but the one thing you won't feel is awe. Why? Because awe is in the rearview mirror. The reason it became a sacred object to you is because you experienced something you really liked about it, like awe. So that's just, it's over for you. The point is this. We are handed in the genealogy a sacred thing that everyone knew about, and everyone's like, you have to make that the major drumbeat. David, David, David. And then we're handed a bunch of names, and most people have gone, ah, who cares? Matthew. David, David, David. Tamar. David, 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 Rahab. David, 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 Ruth. David, 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 Ashiva. Who cares? Who cares should be us, because the opportunity for awe does not come from our sacred objects. It comes from the stuff we didn't think mattered anymore. And then God shows up and goes, you want something special? I'll show you something special. Special comes from the things you didn't think were special all anymore. Watch what I'm about to do. If you've ever prayed for change in your life, it's not going to come from you keep doing the same things or loving the same things. It's going to come from the places unexpected. It's when your actions, what you know what to do, doesn't work anymore that God shows up and does the thing you never expected that you go, that had to be God. Is it any wonder that while God loves everything God created, right? The Bible says that. God loves everyone and everything. We are surrounded in a cocoon of God's grace and love. That it's Jesus who points out to us, pay attention to the ones that no one else pays attention to. Is it any wonder that Matthew pointed out those people from the old part of the story to begin the new part of the story? Jewish people... Matthew says. It's the very ones that you want to ignore, that you feel are irrelevant, that you don't care about. When I tell you about this king, when I tell you about the Genesis, and by Genesis I mean it's, it's the origin or the birth of Jesus Christ. As we get ready for the birth of Jesus Christ, the thing you need to know is you should start paying attention to the downbeat, to the ones no one else cares about. Because who comes next? after his birth. His mother, 16-year-old girl. His father, a lowly handyman. All the tax collectors, all the children, all the women of the night, all the Samaritans, all the people that the rest of the Jewish world went, don't talk about them, they don't matter. Let's get on to King David and the kings that come after him. And Jesus goes, there's my ministry. That's where change comes. That's where awe comes from. This is where you'll experience a God-given sense of humility and downbeat when I show you what I can do. Every parent, I think, realizes that when they're, the one thing they probably want for their kids is to eventually become successful, happy adults. We don't become successful, happy adults until 
One, our parents let go and let us try. And two, here's even more important, we stop asking our parents permission to try. I don't think we're ever adults until we finally stop worrying whether or not mom or dad are actually going to bless us or curse us for our behavior. You're an adult when you don't need their permission to live. I think some of the, uh, the best things that a child could ever say to a parent is things like, I love you, thank you for everything you've given me, but when you die, I'm renting a dumpster. Because your sacred objects is not where my life goes. Most of the time, how many of you can experience this your own parents' house? How many times did the thing that you love be that silly little thing that they were like, why would you want that? But for you, it's a whole new story. Matthew uses the word genealogy, but it can be translated Genesis, and he's doing that on purpose. There is a Genesis at the beginning of the Old Testament, and what he's saying is, and here's the next story. It's not just a continuation, it's a transformation. We're taking the parts that you didn't care about or you didn't think were the biggest parts and we're going to retell the story, the sequel to it, the Jesus Christ part, and the very parts that you cast off and said were not important. The Bathshebas, the Ruths, the Tamars, the Rahabs. David, David, David. Tamar. David, David, David. Rahab. David, 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 Ruth. David, 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 Bathsheba. These are the very parts of the story that begin and set us up for a God who says, you have seen nothing yet. God can't say you've seen nothing yet if God just repeats what God's already been saying. You've you've seen nothing yet from the very parts that you've been ignoring. The awe and the humility is on its way. David, 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 Tamar. David, 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 Rahab. David, 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 Ruth. David, 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 Bathsheba. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for sending your son Jesus into the world. And as we begin to study his story again, thank you for reminding us that as king, he did not play the game that the rest of the kings of the ancient world played, but he focused on the ways that he could inspire awe and humility in his people, that he could change the world, and he did it by loving those that no one else cared about. God, help us to let go. May that divide from the things we don't care about and the things we do when we give them away be the very way that you transform our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.